This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep practical wisdom. In one description of the Buddha's enlightenment, He's sitting under the Bodhi tree the night of his awakening. He sat down with the firm resolve not to get up until he had attained full realization. And as it said, as the night progressed, his mind was assailed by all the forces of Mara, the embodiment of delusion, the embodiment of ignorance. They all appeared in his mind. And some more terrifying visions, you know, of aggression and violence, and some more very seductive visions of heavenly pleasures. And then in this one description, there's one line which for me captures the essence uh, of our entire path of practice, captures the transformative power of the practice. And it's said that in the face of these various visions that were assailing his mind, that the mind of the great being was not moved. I love that line. The mind of the great being was not moved. So this can become the reference point for our own practice. In whatever posture we're in, in whatever activities we're engaged in through the day, what has the power to agitate our minds? Can we pay attention to those things that seduce the mind? So we can experience this agitation and seduction on both obvious and also on subtle levels. You know, as we've all experienced, we can often get overwhelmed by strong emotions. We can get lost in background moods and hardly even know they're there. 
we can get lost in fleeting thoughts, just carried away on trains of association. And on the most subtle levels, we can get caught in an identification with consciousness itself, creating a sense of self in the very process of awareness. So the Buddha highlighted a number of these particularly seductive energies. And in our practice, it's essential that we learn to recognize them because they're very deeply ingrained habit patterns of mind. The neural pathways of these patterns uh, are quite deeply uh, established. So what we want to do is to explore not only the nature of these particular seductions, these seductive habits, but also to begin to understand what is it about them that makes them so alluring? Why do we get caught up in them again and again? When we can explore these patterns with interest you know, and with investigation, we can begin to change our relationship to them. And instead of taking all of these difficult seductive energies as being a personal problem, we begin to see that they are the very place, it's in the very arising of these difficult energies, that we can begin to understand in quite a profound way the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. The nature of ignorance, the nature of awareness. So it's right in the fire of them that we can come to really a transformative understanding. If we can bring this attitude of interest and exploration and investigation, very surprisingly, we can get to a space of actually being happy to see the hindrances because we would rather see them than not see them. You know, and as soon as we make that shift, then it becomes much easier to work with them. And we begin to see that the more we practice being mindful of the hindrances, of the afflictive emotions, of difficult mind states, the more we enter into an engagement with them in a wise way, the more stable our awareness becomes. <clears throat> so there's a little Tibetan saying that says, the stronger the kalesa, the stronger the defilement, the stronger the passion, the stronger the awareness. Because it's the difficulty and being with the difficulty that actually makes the mind strong. <clears throat> so then can we practice so that our own minds, like the mind of the great being, the bodhisattva, can we practice in such a way that our own minds are not moved in the face of these arising states? So tonight I'd like to speak about two of them in particular. 
two very strong habit patterns of mind, two of the five hindrances, <coughs> and that is the one of doubt and aversion. So there are a couple of steps in working with all of the hindrances. And the first step is <coughs> learning to recognize the telltale signs of their appearance. What are the signs that we can recognize? Oh, doubt is present, aversion is present, and the other hindrances as well. And we need to learn how to recognize the signs of them because Mara is very ingenious. And often these hindrances come disguised as something skillful. You know, so it's very easy to be fooled by them. In English, the word doubt can refer to two quite different mind states. So one is skillful and one is not so skillful. The skillful meaning of doubt really has to do with wise investigation. It's, it's the opposite of dogmatic belief. You know, where we really have a questioning mind. We want to understand what is the nature of this? You know, what is it about? What's really happening? So it's not just a kind of dogmatic belief in something, but we're looking, we're inquiring. And we could call that a kind of wise doubt, not simply taking something on face value. <laughs> the unskillful aspect of doubt... Mm, Maybe we could use the term skeptical doubt. So this is the mind state of indecision, of uncertainty. You know, it's perplexity. And it's, it's the opposite of confidence. So it's like coming to a crossroads and then not knowing which way to go. And the mind simply going back and forth. Should I go this way? Should I go left? Should I go right? Left, right? And actually not going any place. That's the function of doubt. That's how doubt works. It uh, enmeshes us in indecision. And in considering the hindrances, it's very helpful to understand that this kind of doubt is the most dangerous of all the hindrances. More than desire and aversion and restlessness and sleepiness. Because doubt can bring our practice to a complete standstill. You know, with all the other hindrances, it's as if we're still in the game. We're muddling through, you know, maybe in storms of desire and aversion sleepiness and restlessness, but we're kind of in there working with it. With doubt, it takes us out of the game altogether. And so that's why it's so critical to begin to understand it, both in its obvious manifestations, but also in its very subtle ones. It's very easy to become frozen in indecision, where we're always checking ourselves. There's a, a line from the book, The Life of Pi, by Jan Martel. 
he captures exactly the energy of doubt. He wrote, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin, is like choosing immobility as a means of transportation. (laughs) That is it, exactly. To choose doubt, this kind of doubt, you know, as a philosophy, a philosophy of life, it doesn't go anyplace. We're just caught in that indecision. And we all have a fair degree of confidence in the Buddha's teachings because that's why we're all here. But still, doubt can arise in our practice and on retreat and in our lives in some very particular ways. And so it's helpful to pay attention to and learn about the particular ways in your own mind that doubt may be manifesting so that you really learn to recognize it and not be frozen by that indecision. As we all know, For anybody engaged in practice, there are many times when it's difficult, when difficulties arise. So this is normal. This is an inevitable part of the path. But then if these difficulties are not understood and we don't quite know how to work with them, they can lead to a lot of doubting thoughts about the practice, about ourselves, about whatever method we're using. So it might be thoughts like, what am I doing here? What does sitting here, feeling my breath, or feeling the sensation of a move, lift, move, place, what does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with the suffering that's in the world? Or we might start comparing practices. You know, we're kind of in Vipassana mode and the thought might come, now maybe I should do Tibetan chanting, you know, or visualization. Or Zen is supposed to be the quick way. Or Sufi dancing would be more fun. And so these kind of thoughts start coming. So these are, all, these are all manifestations of the doubting mind. Or we might start comparing methods even within this very tradition. Should I do metta or should I do vipassana? Years ago, we had one yogi who spent three months. And in every interview, whichever practice he was doing, Oh, I think I should be doing the other one. And we say, okay, why don't you try the other one? So then you try the other one, and then next, no, I think I should do this one. This went on for three months, even with all our best advice. (laughs) That doubting mind was just so strong. So it it can really be a debilitating force in the mind. Should I practice a directed awareness? or choiceless awareness? 
Should I note everything or nothing or maybe something in between? Should I be making a determined, heroic effort or should I relax and just ease into it? So all of these questions actually are fine, just in themselves, and it is good to come to some understanding of the best way for each one of us to practice. But when we get caught up in endless speculation about it, when we find the mind going back and forth and back and forth and not settling on anything, that is a signal that this hindrance of doubt has become very strong. It's the manifestation of doubt. And we want to be able to name it, to recognize it, so that we can work with it and free ourselves. Otherwise, we are just stopped at that crossroads and not going anyplace. Even more ingrained than potential doubts about the practice is the very strong tendency in many people of self-doubt. So this is doubting our very ability to practice. Am I doing it right? I can't do it. It's too hard. It's not the right time. There are so many other things going on in my life. And sometimes externals, external conditions or situations may trigger self-doubt. You know, feelings of not being good enough. So a story I've told many times goes back to the first retreat I did with Sayadaw Upandita in 84. It was a very intense retreat, very demanding. And after about a month of the three-month retreat, I saw the people who I thought were really the good yogis all had little notebooks. And they were always kind of writing things in their notebooks. So immediately my mind went into, oh, I'm not a good enough yogi. Saito Upandita didn't give me a notebook. And kind of a little tailspin about that. And then a few weeks later, I saw the yogis who I thought were actually pretty careless yogis. They had notebooks. <laughs> so then I thought, oh, I must be such a good yogi that Sayadaw thinks I don't need a notebook. And I was just going around and around with this. You know, it's all about questions of self-worth. And at the end of the retreat, I found Upandita didn't tell anybody to have a notebook. People would just did it to kind of keep track of their, you know, their meditation so they could report. But I had created a whole mental uh, scenario which, which triggered you know, that pattern of self-doubt. So we want to see you know, when that's arising. I mean, Saito Pandit had other ways of triggering self-doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one, one of his... <laughs> I could tell endless stories. <laughs> Uh, 
he in going into interviews, he would just often, maybe not with everybody, but he certainly did it with me, he would just be poking to see where my mind would become reactive. You know, so one interview I went in and they would just list all the defilements in my mind that were contained in the report. That I thought was a pretty good report, but he kind of, there are 15 different defilements here. You know? And he did this and he did this. And then one time I went in and I gave my report and he did the same thing and I just started laughing. You know? As soon as I stopped taking it so seriously, he stopped doing it. You know, it's, it's like he was, just, he was just poking. Okay, there's a little reactivity here. There's a little self-judgment. I'll keep, I'll keep poking at it. And as soon as I could let go of that self-judgment and, and just smile at the whole situation, uh, the, whole, the whole relationship actually changed. So we want to see, we want to really be watchful for whatever situation uh, may condition the arising of self-doubt. Right? I'm not good enough, I'm not a good yogi, whatever it is. Because that kind of doubt, like all the others, is very debilitating. When self-doubt is a strongly conditioned force in the mind, it not only is a hindrance in practice, but it becomes a debilitating force in our lives. It's always undermining us. You know, always holding us back when we're always questioning, oh, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. There's an interesting phrase in English. Uh, we say someone is plagued by doubt. That's kind of an interesting phrase, and it, it really uh, points to something, because doubt is a plague. Now, instead of making the experiment with something, whatever it is, whether it's in meditation or in our lives, without having the virya, the energy, you know, the determination, okay, I'm going to do this. And there may be mistakes, and I may make a lot of wrong turns, but I'm going to do it and learn from it all. With self-doubt, it doesn't even allow us to go forward and make mistakes. Right? It really holds us back. So it's, it's a powerful uh, undermining force. We want to be able to see this arise in the mind, not be seduced by it, because it's very possible to become free of that very seductive energy. The problem with unnoticed, unacknowledged patterns of self-doubt is that they become self-fulfilling. You know, if we're continually caught up in them, then in fact our practice doesn't go anyplace because we're caught up in this particular pattern. It doesn't allow us to go forward and investigate and make mistakes. So this doubting mind, whether it's about the practice, whether it's about the particular method, whether it's about our own capacity, this doubting mind, it's exhausting and it's painful. And the image that's used in the text to describe it, the doubting mind is described as a thorny mind. You know, it's, it's the mind that keeps jabbing and it makes the mind very irritable. 
Sometimes self-doubt comes from an underlying feeling of unworthiness. So this, this is not an uncommon feeling in our society. I don't exactly know what it is, you know, that creates this feeling. And somebody in, in a meeting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, they were talking about, you know, the, the emotional conditioning in the West and talking about self-hatred and unworthiness. And it said that he didn't even know what people were talking about. It's like he, it was such a foreign notion, you know, to him based on the Tibetan cultural conditioning, which recognized the inherent worth of every being, right? The potential for awakening in every being. So somebody, and I think it was here at IMS on one of his visits, somebody asked him the question, or was the comment, they said, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this as a beginning meditation student? And you know, usually the Dalai Lama is just so embracing and loving and inviting. And in this particular instance, it's like he got into that just sort of wisdom mode. So he said, you should not be discouraged. Your feeling I have am no value is wrong, absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. So that's, that's really a powerful statement. So Sokni Rinpoche, in talking about this a little more, he just, he just filled that out a little bit, and he was talking about uh, unwarranted fear. But it applies as well to feelings of unworthiness. He said, the feelings are real, but not true. And I think that's what the Dalai Lama is getting at. So we do have these feelings. You know, there may be feelings of un unworthiness and all this self-judgment. So the feelings are real, but they are not true. And that's the point we really have to understand and, and come to understand about ourselves that each one of us, the nature of the mind, you know, is awareness. The potential for awakening is in everybody. The Buddha highlighted the importance of recognizing and working with doubt and all the other hindrances in a very direct way. This is what he said. When we attend to them carelessly, the hindrances, in this case doubt, but all the others, when we attend to them carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tend to vexation, and lead away from Nibbana, from enlightenment. That's a very strong statement about how important it is 
not to be casual in our mindfulness, in our awareness of these hindrances, of these seductive energies. We have to attend to them carefully rather than carelessly. So given this, you know, we begin to understand, and I think at a certain level we all do understand this. I love this. They are detrimental to wisdom, tend to vexation. You know, we all know the hindrances tend to vexation. They don't, they don't make us happy. So given all this, the very real question arises, why do we get caught up in these unskillful states? You know, what is their allure? So the second step of working with them, first is the recognizing them and really becoming aware of the particular forms they take in our own minds. Because we each have our own individual ways of having these hindrances express themselves. So then we want to bring an attitude of investigation and inquiry. What is the allure of them? Why do we get seduced again and again? So this gets very interesting and it's particularly appropriate close to Halloween. And for those of you from overseas, Halloween's the big American uh, holiday. Uh, you know, where kids get dressed up in all kinds of costumes and masquerades. So we begin to see that the great allure of doubt is that it comes, it arises in our minds, masquerading as wisdom. And that's what fools us. We hear this very wise sounding voice in the mind. It sounds so reasonable and so valid and so true. What's the point of doing all this? This is not the right time. Other practices really are a lot quicker. Aren't we already enlightened? I'm so hopeless. I am the world's worst yogi. Much better to go on vacation. (laughs) And so these voices, yes, they sound so right. And so we believe them. We think it's the voice of wisdom, not seeing that it's actually the voice of doubt. So we need to be on guard. We really need to watch this because we might think, oh, I'd never be seduced by that. (laughs) (laughs) It's very helpful to keep a very alert uh, attitude toward the arising of the particular form doubt may take for you. Because it will be different, you know, it'll be a different voice, it'll be saying a different thing, but one, your mind knows you so well, it will find exactly the right hook. 
So we really need to rely on that great strength of mindfulness and interest and investigation and all the factors of awakening. That these are our allies in seeing how they're arising in the particular form for us and then learning to be very alert, to catch it as soon as it arises. You know, in past years we always used to say, you know, say doubting tape, doubting tape. But a couple of years ago somebody pointed out to me that people don't use tapes anymore. <laughs> so I update the technology a little bit. So I don't know what note you would, maybe doubting track, you know, something like that. And then, if we can do that, if we can see this doubting thought, or doubting feeling arise in the mind, then right in the midst of it, there can be a sudden awakening to its empty, transparent nature. Just like every other thought, it has no substance if we're not uh, sucked into it. So right in the middle of the doubt, if we can be mindful of it, our mind can open to a profound understanding of emptiness, of transparency. There was a 11th or 12th century Korean Zen master. <clears throat> His name is Shinul. And I think he was one of the founders of Korean Zen. And there's a wonderful book of his teachings called Tracing Back the Radiance. And it's all about looking back at the nature of mind. And he framed his teachings, I think in, in a really wonderful way, he framed his whole teaching as sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So he really posited the potential of awakening suddenly to the nature of awareness, but then emphasizing the need for the gradual cultivation of that. Like a single moment is not going to undo you know, eons of conditioning. But this is what he wrote about this moment of sudden awakening. He said, although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and empty, and the mind's nature is originally pure. So even though we need the gradual cultivation, it's to understand that right in the midst of the arising of these hindrances. If we can bring the interest and bring awareness and bring investigation right into the midst of them, there can be a sudden realization, a sudden awakening. Yes, this is empty too. This is selfless too. It doesn't belong to anybody. And this has a transforming effect on how we understand our minds and how we understand our lives. So this is working with doubt. The second hindrance that I wanted to talk about this evening is one that's equally strongly conditioned, comes up a lot in practice in many forms, and that is 
the many forms of aversion in the mind. And as you've probably noticed, whether you've been here seven weeks or a little less than a week, it doesn't take long for aversion to show itself. It can take many forms. It can be anger, hatred, annoyance, irritation, fear, unworthiness, grief, boredom, ill will, the judging mind, all of these, if we look carefully, you'll see they're imbued with this quality of aversion. All of these states, all of these experiences are conditioned reactions to what we find unpleasant. It's very few people who feel aversion to the pleasant. You know, there may be some, but not common. So we want to say, yes, aversion is a conditioned response to the habit pattern of our response to what we feel, what we experience as being unpleasant. And just as with doubt, our practice is to learn how to recognize the arising of aversion as close to the beginning as possible. And then really to explore what is the nature of this mind state. Now, so we begin to understand what it feels like. What, it's like we, we become a scientist of aversion. You know? And then we also begin to understand the source of its power over the mind. Why do we get caught up in it so often? So aversion can arise and does arise in some quite predictable ways. Very easy to see aversion arise in relationship to physical pain. You know, when unpleasant sensations arise in the body, we often feel just a contraction. You know, we're pulling back. We don't like it. Frustration, impatience. We just don't like them because they're unpleasant. So this contraction of our energy system you know, often reveals itself to us as a sense of struggle. You know, you're going along in the practice and everything is flowing smoothly and then there's something unpleasant in the body, in the mind, but easily seen with pain, discomfort. You know, and then there's this contraction and then we feel you know, the practice is a struggle going on. So Sada Utejaniya had some helpful words with regard to this and a good reminder for us. He said, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Now see if what he says next applies to you or not. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dharma? Yeah. And it's just so interesting because it's just so true. You know, we all want pleasant experience. We don't even want this 
the littlest unpleasant experience. But that's not the way of the Dharma. You know, the way of the Dharma is to see the truth of our lives unfolding. And as we all know, the nature of feeling pleasant and unpleasant keeps changing. And sometimes things are pleasant, sometimes things are unpleasant. So can we open to this, you know, and learn to deal skillfully or, or a little more skillfully with painful, unpleasant feelings? Now, obviously, we need some real discerning wisdom. You know, if you put your hand in fire, it's not that you want burning, burning, burning. No, you know, it's, we're not abdicating common sense. And so as we begin to experience different painful feelings or sensations in the body, we have to discern, okay, is this, is this a danger signal? You know, is this saying, no, th this is too much, you know, and I need to back off. This is straining, this is stressing uh, in a harmful way. Or not. Sometimes, the, sometimes we can be experiencing intense pain. And yet it's fine, there's no problem. And we get up from the sitting and we do a few minutes of walking and the pain is totally gone. And so that's an indication that that's a kind of Dharma pain rather than it being a problem. So you keep an eye out for the arising of aversion when unpleasant sensations come, when painful sensations come. Aversion also arises very easily in the mind when we think about some unpleasant past experience, unpleasant past situation. There's a thought or an image you know, of someone or some event and we get angry and irritated or fearful just thinking about it. And this is one of the most bizarre aspects of our lives and our conditioning. Because at that moment, what we're really getting angry at is a thought. The situation is not happening. This, this, this happened in the past. So we're just going along with our lives and then the thought of the image comes and almost immediately it can trigger you know, this strong aversive reaction. Forgetting that all that happened was a thought arose. So Manindraji, my first teacher, expressed this understanding just in a way that has stayed with me all these years. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. So you can substitute anything for mother. The thought of whatever is not the whatever. It's just a thought in the mind. And then even more remarkable, we can get angry and upset and fearful about things that haven't even happened yet. Kind of so we're sitting and we're imagining something might happen. So, and there's some thoughts about it or some images about it and they arise in the mind and if we're not mindful, if we're not seeing that they're just thoughts, psh, the thought can trigger intense emotions. I had one example of this. There are many, you know, there are endless examples, but one really stands out in my mind. This happened quite a few years ago and 
it was the day of an IMS board meeting, and I knew there was going to be some contentious issue being brought up at the meeting. So I was just walking around the loop you know, before the meeting. And the thought of the meeting came into my mind and the image of the contention. You know, and of course, I had the right view. <laughs> that goes without saying. <laughs> and it was just so interesting. The thought came. The meeting hadn't happened yet. This was all anticipation. The thought came and immediately... I could feel myself getting annoyed and irritated. And but I saw it. I was watching it. So, so yeah, this is just a thought. Kind of subsided. And then the thought came again. And same reaction. So then I started playing. I started intentionally having the thought. And even when I was doing it intentionally, it very often triggered the emotion. So it became very interesting just to begin to understand the relationship of thought to emotion. Both are actually impersonal, not I, not self, but how one can trigger the other, and the reverse. Sometimes emotions trigger a lot of thoughts. So all of this, all of this is the field of our inquiry. We want to understand how our minds, how our hearts are working, how we get caught, how we get seduced, the possibility of staying free in those patterns. It's also important to understand that sometimes powerful emotions, even emotions like anger, sometimes these powerful emotions are telling us something that we need to pay attention to. You know, those emotions can be conveying important information. You know, we might feel a lot of anger, perhaps, at injustice, you know, in the world. Or we might feel anger as the expression of a need to actually establish some appropriate boundaries in certain relationships. The key here is, can we take the message of the emotion and really see what it is and see what's important and see what needs to be done without being overwhelmed by the anger. Where we're really taking the wisdom aspect of it, learning from it, taking appropriate response, but not having our actions be both clouded by and motivated by the anger itself. So that's, that's a great challenge. You know, but that's the gift of the practice. That's what becomes increasingly possible the more aware we are of our own minds. Now, one of the most famous lines in the Buddhist teachings, which would certainly serve the world well if more people understood it, is when he said, hatred never ceases by hatred. No, it only ceases by love. And there are, of course, some shining examples of this in individuals, but as societies, we're not doing too well. You know, and 
very often hatred breeds hatred breeds hatred. And we see these cycles of violence in so many places in the world. And until that changes, until that pattern changes, it's hard to see the resolution. So we can get impatient or frustrated certain situations on retreat. Now, when we are feeling grumpy or discouraged or we have low energy, it's like the smallest thing somebody else does, as you well know, can provoke all kinds of aversion and judgment. It's what we call the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, where there's some yogi here, or maybe more than one, who drives you crazy. You don't like the way they walk. You don't like what they're wearing. You don't like how they eat. And it, goes, it just goes on and on. And it's all a total projection of mind. You know, it's just a reflection of our own difficulty at that moment. So be aware of it. Let's... <laughs> When you find your mind getting lost in those kind of aversive thoughts, don't be seduced by, yeah, that person really is like that. You haven't said one word to them. <laughs> and yet, you know, you, you know their whole life story. No, it's just our own minds projecting. So we can take this as feedback, we can take this as signal to look inward instead of just being caught up in that pattern. You know, aversion arises when we personalize impersonal situations. One of the best places to observe this is at airports. Get to the airport two hours before your flight, check in, flight canceled. <laughs> And then just to watch all the reactions of people. Yeah, and it's, it's not to say this is not a frustrating situation, but it's not personal. I mean, the, the airline didn't cancel it because of us. There were some conditions which gave rise to it, but we take it so personally. And so that's just interesting to watch. You're caught in a traffic jam. You know, do you get caught up in road rage or not? Do you realize, no, these are just the conditions at the moment. It's not about me. So that's a good little mantra, which could be used very often in life. So sometimes aversion or anger arises because there are unnoticed emotions underneath which are feeding them or fueling them. And unless we then explore, okay, what's, what's underneath it? Now, sometimes, sometimes these emotions are like an underground spring for the aversion or the anger. And so just many examples of this, but one common example may be, maybe there's a situation, you know, of some deep hurt. And if we're not acknowledging that feeling of hurt, and it's kind of, we're sitting on top of that, that can rebound in anger. And the anger will continue until we kind of drop down and, oh, okay, there's a feeling of hurt here. Can I be with that? Another example of this, years ago I was teaching a retreat for 
law students, lawyers, some judges. So it was that legal community. And in one of the group interviews, a third-degree law student, you know, and it's a very, it's a very high-pressured environment, he made such an interesting comment. He said that, you know, in this very litigious environment where people are, you know, arguing and suing each other and all that, he said he had to feel anger so that he wouldn't feel the fear. And I thought, you know, so interesting. Because he had no capacity to simply open to and feel and accept the fear. So that got pushed down in an effort to avoid the feeling of fear. It had to come out as anger. Not very productive. You know, and there's another whole way of relating to this. Where we can begin to open, whether it's to the unpleasant sensations in the body, to open to the unpleasant emotions, to the feeling of hurt, to the feeling of fear to see what might be underneath the aversion. So what is the seductive power? You know, anger or irritation, annoyance, these are not pleasant states. So why do we get caught up in them so often? How do they seduce us? into believing them and identifying with them. So this would be worth looking at, you know, in your minds. Very often, the seduction of anger is the sweet feeling of being right. And so we justify it to ourselves. I should be angry or irritated or annoyed Look at what that person is doing. So the Buddha described it in this way. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. And take a look the next time there's, if anger should arise sometime in the next five weeks. Just take a look. See, See if you can... Appreciate its honeyed tip. What makes it so sweet for us? And then really trace it back to the quality of its underlying energy, you know, which is a defilement and which is suffering. So there are many ways of working with aversion in the mind. Sometimes a simple moment of recognition is enough. We're aware of the anger, the aversion, the annoyance, the irritation, whatever form it takes. We become mindful of it, we recognize it, we see it, we're aware of it, and we see its impermanent conditioned nature. We investigate what it's like. Oh, anger is like this. Anger feels like this. So we're not identified with it. There's one Tibetan teachings which expresses the potential of this immediate release where it says, if you don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. So that's a beautiful teaching. If we don't cling, and it could be to anything, but here we're talking about aversion, could be anything at all, 
if we don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. Because everything is in a process of change. So that is the simplest way of relating to this particular hindrance. But sometimes, even if we do recognize it, we still seem to be caught. It's, it doesn't seem to be naturally free just in the moment. So then we might take the aversion as a reminder to go back to being mindful of the unpleasantness of whatever the experience is. So we're becoming mindful of the unpleasant, the Vedana, you know, of the physical discomfort or the unpleasantness of a certain emotion. And we're actually noting unpleasant, unpleasant, contact, unpleasant. And in the mindfulness of that, very often that aversive, the seduction of aversion falls away. And just one little story about this. I was in Bodh Gaya this years ago, this is back in the early 70s. And just living in this little hut, it was like seven by seven, didn't even, it just had a canvas flap for a door. And so I'm sitting on this, it was a wooden bed, and I'm just sitting meditating. And the cat comes in and jumps on my lap. And I'm really a dog person, not a cat person. <laughs> Besides, it was disturbing my meditation. <laughs> so I just, you know, picked the cat and tossed it out. 30 seconds later, you know, it was back on my lap. Psh, tossed it out. Psh, back on my lap. Tossed. I don't know, this must have happened 10 times, 15 times. So the hut didn't have a door. <laughs> it just had a flap. So there was really no way of keeping it out. So finally, after <laughs> quite a few cycles of aversive reaction, the cat came in, I realized, nothing, okay, it's okay. <laughs> we'll meditate together. <laughs> as soon as I let go of that aversive reaction, the cat jumped out, <laughs> went out the door. Uh, that cat must have been the Buddha. <laughs> so lessons come in so many different ways. Okay. It's, this could go on for quite a while, but I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, one of the most important things in working with aversion, in any of its forms, anger, irritation, annoyance, fear, we really need to check the attitude we have in the way we're with it. Because just like with physical pain, it's very easy to fall into the trap of not liking these mind states because they're unpleasant. We don't like the aversion, we don't like the anger, and we're pushing at it. We're pushing away, we're resisting. And so then that's trying to treat aversion with aversion. It doesn't work. And so we really need to check our attitude and ask, you know, okay, how am I relating to this anger, to this aversion? And kind of in the style of Thich Nhat Hanh, 
you know, where he talks in this very loving way of just embracing it. Let the sunshine of mindfulness you know, shine on the anger and penetrate it and infiltrate it. So it's a very tender way of holding it. And an image which might be helpful to call this attitude up, you might, if you're really caught in, you know, in a struggle with it, you might just think of how you would be with a child that you loved a lot who was just going through you know, an anger fit. You would just, in your best moments, <laughs> you would just be there. You, know, you would be there in a loving way, knowing that it's a passing state. So can we bring that same kind of gentle, kind awareness, but awareness, not, not being seduced by it, we're holding it in this wise attitude. And in that we create the space to see that yes, this is just another impermanent mind state emotion. It arises, it passes. Can we be like that great being whose mind is not moved by what arises? The mind of the great being was not moved. So this, this is our practice. And we take all the elements of our experience. You know, and this, this is what nourishes the practice. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Joseph Goldstein's Insight Hour. We appreciate your support and ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash joseph and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which MindPod and Joseph will receive a small percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour.